0: This is Undisciplined, I'm Matthew LaPlante. We'll be starting today's program with a conversation about the way sports fans engage in sports fandom. Next, we're going to talk about how plants grow in different circumstances, and if those two subjects seem far-flung, well, that's what we do on this show. We've explained this every now and then in the introduction to this program, but it's good to revisit why we do this, because here's the thing. Despite the fact that most of our guests work on university campuses surrounded by brilliant people doing fascinating work, the truth is that most academics spend a lot of their professional and even social time with other researchers who are either in their discipline or in a closely related discipline. And look, there's nothing wrong with that, but it sometimes prevents the sort of outside the box thinking and question asking that pushes us to look at old ideas in new ways. So that's why we've got this show. And that's why today we'll be joined by two researchers who might not have occasion to discover one another's work in normal circumstances. Joining us today on the line from Provo, Utah, where he's an associate professor of journalism at Brigham Young University is Chris Boyle. His recent study in the Journal of Sports Media examined the types of sports fans who engage in online sports discussion forums and proposes three distinct groups of people who account for the majority of participation. Chris Boyle, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
0: And also with us in studio is Leslie Ferrero. Her research as a Ph.D. student at Utah State University has honed in on diversity productivity relationships in ecology. And her recent study on the really important differences between greenhouse and field measured plant soil feedbacks was recently published in Frontiers in Environmental Science. Leslie Ferrero, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: And if you're a regular Utah Public Radio listener, you may recognize Leslie's voice because in addition to her research and studies, she has been a regular contributor to UPR with reports on everything from air pollution to degenerative diseases to our changing climate. We're going to start today with a conversation about sports forums. Chris Boyle, the days in which the dominant source of sports information was the daily newspaper, uh, those days are long, long over. It's probably not news to a lot of people that news consumers of all kinds now get their news online, but it's not the same kind of content. Can we start by talking a bit about how online sports media differs from traditional sports media?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think that the one thing that fascinates me in relation to sports media, and particularly online sports media, is the fact that it allows uh, fans or those who are interested in sports to be a little bit more engaged than they were maybe in the traditional forms. right? Like you said, with the newspaper, you wait for the newspaper story to come out, you might read the story, and then, you know, the the best you would do is maybe talk with other you know, family members, neighbors, friends, coworkers about something you read, there wasn't a lot of interaction between the person creating the content and the fan. But now because we have obviously the technologies and things that we do online and the ability for us to read and to comment and to engage with not only the journalists or the sports reporters but also other fans, it allows for more of a discussion, more of a community online than you've ever gotten traditional means.
0: And the people who are engaged in this aren't—I uh, mean, the people who are producing this, I should say, they're sometimes not journalists. They are fans themselves, right? They're fans themselves who are taking on somewhat of a journalistic role.
1: Absolutely. The online sports forums are meant to be kind of these online discussion boards, similar to what you might find in a lot of different areas with you know, people with different interests in politics or religion or whatever it might be. In this case, it's we looked at sports forums— and again, with what really kind of triggered us onto this study was the, the fascination I had with the fact that it does create kind of a community amongst people who may never meet each other in person, but they share a similar interests in the fact that they both support the same team or the same sport.
0: Is that why we've got, even though we have online forums for everything, they are especially popular for sports and sports fans because of this, this community aspect, the community that builds around allegiance to a team?
1: yeah I think so and I think that this is the kind of thing that a, an online community is really for' is those who are passionate about something and sports is something that can bring a lot of passion and excitement particularly among fans who are really engaged in their team or really interested in and they're looking for an outlet of where they can go and talk about you know the most recent game or the most recent happening with their team and the most logical place I think for some of these people is to go online because they know they can find people who will share their same opinions or even at least have the same devotion and, and loyalty to their team and so they they can make that connection. I think it's just really fascinating and that's what what really kind of triggered me to this study was really wanting to understand what motivates them to go online and why are they online and what are they doing online, particularly with these online forums.
0: Now, before we get to, to those motivations, I wanted to back up just a little bit and talk about how you set this up. You started with uses and gratification theory. And this is a theory that's been around in social science in some shape or form for more than 75 years, but it made some assumptions about media consumers. Well, they've been become really obvious in the digital media age. It was almost predictive of how people would act in online media settings. What are some of the presumptions of this theory that were important to you as you dug into the question of why people go into these forums?
1: Well, I think the most important part of this theory is really just the the belief that the users, they have control over what they're consuming, right? Before uses and gratifications came along, Communication scholars really had this belief that the media or the press or communicators would provide information and users would just, without really thinking about it, consume it and be influenced by it. But uses and gratifications went a little bit different and said, no, users actually have the opportunity to pick and choose what they consume based on what their needs are and what their motivations are. Uses and gratifications is really built on this idea that we have control of what we're consuming, that it's not just all fed to us.
0: And so you and your collaborators, you built this study, a Q sort of a survey of forum users to understand more about the uses and gratifications of users on these sports forums. Why is that an interesting and important question to ask? What good does it do us to know why people are on a message board to talk about the sports they watch? Did you have an idea when you were devising the questions what potentially we would be able to do with those answers, or were they just interesting questions to you?
1: No, I think we had some assumptions or we had some thoughts of how we could kind of group individuals based on their motivations. But you never really know until you kind of go out and actually do the study and find out for yourself. And in this case, you know, as we went through the process of of working with participants in the study and, and having them rank order some statements and do some other things related to the study, and we started to see where the divide was, it was really just, it's always fascinating with a Q sort where you get a chance to see Okay, are my assumptions right? do I, you know I assume that people are doing you know x, y, and z because this is their motivation or this is these are the kinds of people that that get on you know sports form sites, and this is why they do it am I right in in those assumptions or not and And when you do the study, you start to actually see some i guess really what it is is some support or disproving i guess um something if you're off as well so really, the purpose of doing this q sort was just to kind of i think you're right in the fact that we wanted to just see if our assumptions were correct or not
0: when you did this you found that forum users could be divided into three pretty distinct groups you name these groups tailgaters trivia seekers and bandwagon fans in a few words who are the tailgaters
1: Tailgaters are individuals who they come kind of for the social aspect. Really, it's the equivalent of like when you would go to a football game or a basketball game and you go tailgate before the game. They come because they like just being able to talk about their team with others who share that same like-mindedness, right, that they have that same support. They're not necessarily there to, to glean a lot of information or to gain new knowledge, though they may as they go through it. But what's more important to them is this the ability to just Hey, how's it going? What do you think of the game this week? What did, you know, what did you like, didn't like? Whatever it might be that they would ask each other on these sites.
0: Okay, and then the trivia seekers.
1: Trivia seekers use these forms basically to to obtain information, and they want to stay current with sports-related news. They may hear something about you know a player not playing at the next game, so the first thing they do is they go online to see if anyone else has heard the same thing. These are the kinds of people, too, that if they find a news article, for instance, that talks more specifically about a certain thing, they'll share it here because they feel like, hey, just so you know, here's here's what I heard and here's what the you know most up-to-date information is on the player's injury or whatever it might be. And it's all about the information, getting the information, sharing information as you find it yourself.
0: And finally, the bandwagoners.
1: Bandwagon fans are, are kind of similar to the tailgaters in a way, but they're basically there because they want to just, the, the team's doing really well or, or maybe not doing well, and, and they want to go on and, and commiserate and... They're really more about entertainment rather than necessarily the social aspect. Okay, this is just something to do with my time. I'm curious what people have to say after the game. But they're not necessarily as active and engaged as maybe the trivia seekers or even the tailgaters, right? But they're there just kind of to go along and just see what other people are saying. They won't necessarily engage as much. They'll just go through and scan through what people are talking about.
0: Okay, so we've got these three groups, pretty distinct groups that that sort themselves out in the analysis, but this was a fairly small survey. Do you feel pretty confident that these three groups would show up in a larger sample?
1: Yeah, I think the one thing that my colleagues and I choose to use Q- 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 sort is it's not necessarily meant to be a big generalizable to a-, a wide, big population. It just gives you a sense of individuals within who are really active in a certain area, in this case, the sports forums. How can we group them? And it's more about kind of understanding those groups. But even as I went through this, I really do, I personally feel like if we were to do this a bigger sample, that this is kind of where people will be drawn to these three groups. Because as we went through and did this, there were some pretty distinct divisions. And you could draw these and group these these individuals together and, and be able to kind of come to these conclusions.
0: Let's say we did the same survey, but in two groups. Let's say we took American football fans and international football fans, soccer fans. Do you think we'd see differences between two groups of sports or even within a single sport? Like, do the Packers and the Patriots have different groups of, of fans, do you think? Different kinds of fans on, on these fan boards?
1: Potentially. I think there's always a, the opportunity where there could be differences, and, and the more you do this, you may find that there are other groups that could surface. right? But a lot of these statements that we put together were pretty general in the fact that they weren't sport-specific or behavior-specific necessarily. It was broad enough that I think that you could do this for football, you could do this for basketball, you could do this for different sports – you would still in my opinion still see some of the same characteristics surface whether someone's a basketball fan, football fan, or hockey fan or baseball fan, they're going to these sites for the same reasons. They, you know, they want to be part of a team discussion, they want to get information, they want to be part of a social group. You know, I think that they're general enough kind of um, behaviors that doesn't seem to be that, you know, I don't think a particular sport would really differentiate too much. That's
0: Chris Boyle. His team's recent study, A Q Sort of Why People Visit Online Sports Forums, was published in the Journal of Sports Media. Hey, Chris, can you stick around a bit and listen in as I chat with our next guest? Absolutely. Let's move now from the ways in which sports fans behave online to the ways in which plants behave in different circumstances. We all know that plants need sunlight, water, and nutrients to grow. And you probably also recognize that as plants grow, they impact the soil around them, which turns around and impacts the plant, which impacts the soil, and so on. It's this whole big cycle. Our ability to understand plant soil feedbacks is fundamental to our understanding of pretty much everything that exists within this system or which relies on this system, right?
2: So yeah, plant soil feedbacks have been suggested as maybe being responsible for invasion. Why is cheatgrass coming in? Maybe it's plant soil feedbacks. For coexistence, why doesn't one plant just outcompete all the others. So yeah, they're definitely a hot sort of mechanism for explaining plant community dynamics right now.
0: And this is important for the food that we eat.
2: It is. So if you've grown a garden for more than two years, you might have noticed that your plants start yielding less and less. And that's likely due to a negative self-plant soil feedback. If you're planting in the same spot again and again, it's getting hammered by diseases and it's killing your yield.
0: And so obviously, like, scientists want to model this and they do that in greenhouses In that sort of setting, what does a typical plant soil feedback experiment look like? What am I looking at?
2: So there's a ton of ways you can do this. The basic theory is that, or the basic setup is that you head out and you have a soil that's been altered by a plant. And then you test that plant's response to that soil. So one thing you could do is go out to a big patch of this plant growing in the wild, dig up the dirt, and plant plants in the greenhouse in the dirt another thing you could do is take sterile soil plant a plant in there and let it grow kill the plant and plant another plant in there to test that plant's response to this altered soil that has accumulated years of a plant's growth on it and thus accumulated microbes
0: there's probably an obvious answer to this but like why why greenhouses why don't we just do this out in the wild
2: Well, it's not trivial to do a greenhouse experiment, but it's super controlled, right? You don't have to worry about cows coming in and eating your whole experiment. You don't have to worry about drought baking your whole experiment. There's a lot fewer moving parts in the greenhouse, and that's why they're preferred.
0: And so, and that's important for research settings because we got to, to control as many X factors as possible to get to the bottom of the questions we're asking. But it turns out that our attempts to model plant-soil feedbacks are, well, they're not really great, right?
2: Not in the greenhouse.
0: Not in the greenhouse. Okay, so so now when we say not really great, and this is what your paper is on, how not really great are we talking about?
2: I reviewed five different experiments with paired greenhouse and field plant soil feedback. So these are the same species grown in the field and the greenhouse paired experiments. And I found no positive correlation at any of these sites.
0: No correlation. No
2: positive correlation. There was one site with a negative correlation. Now, my instinct says this is probably a spurious correlation because it was one of my experiments with the lowest sample size. However, it's possible that there's perhaps some mechanism that could reverse plant soil feedback but seeing as i didn't see this in four of the five other sites i'm really dubious of that one negative correlation now
0: as an aside here often when we think about what makes a scientific study interesting the the things that get a lot of play is somebody finds a really deep strong correlation between between one thing and another thing what what makes this interesting is you really didn't find anything that was compelling as a correlation.
2: There was no positive correlation at any of the sites. And so, I mean, I don't want to
0: hand you a bunch of mud to sling here, but if I'm reading this right, if we're going to try to understand plant soil feedback in the wild... Greenhouse experiments don't tell us much if anything. And so plant soil feedback experiments that have done been done in the past in greenhouses.
2: They're not useful for maybe understanding field dynamics. However, they probably do still have some utility in allowing us to come up with conceptual models to maybe understand how a plant soil feedback, if it was like X, might affect coexistence, invasion, production, the diversity-productivity relationship.
0: So this all really presents kind of a big challenge because, as you were saying earlier, the whole reason we use greenhouses is because we can exert a measure of control over the conditions that might affect the thing we're studying. And we lose that to a pretty large extent when we go outside. So what's the the solution here?
2: I think we need more field experimentation, but the drawback is that it is not trivial. You know, greenhouse experiments take place on the order of months, and field experiments take place on the order of years. You have to weed a field experiment if you want to control competition, whereas in the greenhouse you plant those plants and those are the seeds that are there, so you don't have to worry about that. You you have to worry about water availability, about nutrient drawdown in the field. It it is incredibly difficult, and I think we need better funding rates in the sciences if we're going to improve plant-soil feedbacks as a field in the field.
0: I love that you just put in a call for more funding for science. I think, like, if if we can have all of our guests work in a call for more funding for science every single week, we'll be doing okay here. I'm wondering how this result has colored. Your conceptualization of what lab based experiments can tell us about the real world, not just within the thing you study, but within the breadth of science.
2: For me, this calls for the validation of existing experiments that have been done in the greenhouse in the field again. You know, there was a great experiment that I loved looking at cheatgrass, and it found that it had a neutral plant soil feedback. And now I'm wondering, is that true in the field as well? Someone should go out and replicate this experiment. I'm, I guess, dubious of results, and I'd like to see more validation.
0: Replication and validation is, of course, essential to the scientific process, obviously. And yet scientists get really possessive and and proud about their results. Are you getting hate mail yet?
2: Oh, no, but I have gotten some messages from friends saying that, well, you know, your paper is just the latest out of many pointing this out, and the the state of plant soil feedbacks as a field still hasn't changed. So I do think that there will be slow movement, if any, towards field experiments. Even though people recognize that greenhouse experiments are flawed, simply because they're difficult, expensive, and take a long time.
0: That's Leslie Ferrero. Her team's work on greenhouse and field measured plant soil feedbacks was recently published in Frontiers in Environmental Science. And now for an introduction, Leslie, this is sports media analyst Chris Boyle. And Chris, this is research ecologist Leslie Ferrero.
1: Hi, Leslie.
2: Nice to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you, too. Hey guys, let me make what might be a really obvious observation. And the observation is that whatever we study, whether it's people on sports forums or it's plants in greenhouses, is likely to behave quite differently depending on the conditions in which this thing is being studied. And sometimes when I think about the breadth of chaos that can impact the way researchers gather information, it seems like, insurmountably greater than the things that we can actually control. You know, like, what you guys do is shine a little flashlight in this dark room, and I'm wondering if you ever just get frustrated that you can't just turn on the entire light system because the chaos prevents that.
2: Well, for me at least, plant soil feedbacks are definitely very noisy. This isn't the only paper out there that's discovered variability In this field, it seems like plant soil feedbacks vary with everything, with climate, with soil texture, with the length of time that that soil had been conditioned by a species. But at the same time, I've been noticing they're not random. So there's something there. It's very frustrating to me to the point where I've considered doing something else, but it's just such a fascinating field it's hard to not keep going.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, really from the point of a researcher, that's what, what drives the research, right, is this idea of being able to answer questions that are out there that people maybe think they know the answers to but they don't fully understand or they make assumptions that aren't 100% accurate. And at least on my end as a, as a researcher, I like being able to, to dive into these things and be able to say, you know, there, there really is or there isn't a reason for this or, you know, the reasons what we thought were there are or maybe not the same or maybe even if they are the same, it's, it just provides that support from a more solid and scientific standpoint that, to be able to support or disprove assumptions that are out there. And sometimes they are popular, and there are times where it's, well, I don't agree with that, even though you've got the evidence to show otherwise they don't like the results, and that can get frustrating. My question is, is, what's the next step now? Where do you go from here?
2: What I'm wondering is if the same basic models we use to understand the world and how plants grow together produce more accurate results for greenhouse communities in the greenhouse and for field communities in the field. So are our models that we developed off of greenhouse data still useful in field contexts, or are they fundamentally broken I have my suspicions that the models aren't broken that we can still use plant soil feedbacks to relate to community growth
1: and then if if for some reason that does come back that they are are broken I mean is there a means to determine what the you know the next best option would be
2: I guess it's time for the mathematicians to go back (laughs) to work on the models yeah oh man Now, I'm curious, you have these three different classes, the tailgaters, the trivia seekers, the bandwagons, but what Mm -hmm. are the implications of that? What does it mean for sports fandom as a whole?
1: I think what it does, in my mind, it creates an awareness even amongst those who, particularly those, I guess, who participate on these forums, right? Because the idea is they know that they go on there. And this, I think, applies to anything even beyond just a study like this, any kind of use that we have, whether it's social media or otherwise, we don't really think about why we're on there. And then as we take the opportunity to go, well, why is it that I go on there? And why is it that I choose to to do this? And it's very much a, an eye-opener for individuals as they read a study like this and go, well, I hadn't thought about it this way. And then they, the next question for them is, well, where do I fit in? And then once you understand that, that sometimes can also motivate maybe the way you choose to interact with that site moving forward so it, it can influence and impact potentially how you interact with others online
0: chris you started with this uses and gratification theory and your findings you know like aligned to this theory they of all work out what if they hadn't what if you had come to a situation where it was more like what happened with leslie where you're you're not finding the thing that you're thinking should be there is that a terrifying place to be as a researcher or a thrilling place to be as a researcher?
1: Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. In my mind, what I could see happening is, all right, we had maybe in our minds some ideas of the types of people that are on these site. Well, what what happens if we, we do this and they, those types of people you know those categories that we kind of assume in our mind are going to appear don't appear what happens most likely is another category appears instead and that to me that's where the exciting part comes that's what i really actually enjoy about being a researcher sometimes you do get surprised yourself
0: we're just about out of time chris boyle thanks for joining us on undisciplined oh thank
1: you i appreciate the opportunity
0: and leslie ferrero thank you
2: yeah you're very welcome
0: undisciplined is a production of utah public radio and if you happen to live in utah you can listen to us every week on friday at 2 p.m on upr if you miss us then you can listen to every episode of undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts our producer is naomi ward our associate producer is mia dora our theme music is little idea by benjamin to and i'm matthew Leplant. thanks for listening now go have big ideas